Who is the God who saves? To be a Christian is to be someone who has been rescued. Becoming a Christian is not primarily about adopting a particular philosophy, although it does give you a particular perspective on the world. Becoming a Christian is not primarily about adopting a particular moral code, although it does influence your ethics. Becoming a Christian is fundamentally about getting rescued, being saved. That process begins with admitting that you need saving. And then it involves entrusting yourself to a God who saves and experiencing that transfer from death to life, from darkness to light, from condemnation to justification, from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. To be a Christian is to be someone who has been saved. And that raises the question for us Christians, who is this God who saves? If you're at the beach and you get caught in a rip and you're pulled out to sea and you're running out of breath and the waters are closing over your head, but then a boat pulls up, a hand reaches down and pulls you back into the land of the living, you rightly want to know, who is this person who has saved me? Today, as we consider Exodus 1 to 4, we're going to consider some key truths about the God who saves. The God who saved Israel out of Egypt. The God who saves Jesus out of the grave. The God who saves us from our sins. Who is this God who saves? And the place I want to start is actually in the middle of our second reading from Exodus chapter 3. Can you open that up? It's on the Church Bible's page 80, I believe. Here, the salvation plan has begun. Moses is being recruited as a leader. More on him later. God is telling him to go and lead the Israelites out of Egypt, but Moses has some reservations. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 13. And Moses asked God a question. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites... And say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is actually a crucial moment in the Bible, the moment where God reveals and explains his name. Now, you and I might think, why does God need a name? We say God and we know what we're talking about. You and I live in a context where people hear the word God and the only debate is whether there is one God or zero gods. But in the ancient Near East, and in lots of places today, the unquestioned assumption is that there are lots and lots of gods. Gods of different regions, 
gods of different people groups, gods who have jurisdiction over different aspects of life. And so then if you said to someone on the street, I believe in God, they would, they would look at you funny and say, which one are you talking about? That's why Moses asked this question about God's name. In the Bible's way of thinking, a name is not just an arbitrary label, something just made up to distinguish one person from another. A name was much more significant. Names were considered to disclose something about the person themselves. When God reveals his name, he's revealing something of his true nature. In Hebrew, God's name looks like this, probably pronounced Yahweh. In our English Bibles, it's translated with the word Lord in small capitals. Uh, in the Bible study notes, there's some fine print where you can read the details of how that all works. We'll get into it now. But this name Yahweh is derived from the verb to be. And in verse 14, God gives like an extended explanation of his name. He says, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be what I will be. Or I will bring about what I will bring about. In ancient times, knowing the name of a god also gave you a measure of power over them. Uh, teachers know how this works. Uh, if you've got a room full of students, then the student whose name you know, you have more, more power over that student than the one you don't know their name of. You down the back. doesn't work the same way. <laughs> so knowing the name of a god would give you a measure of power over them. But actually that is not the case for the Lord. He is who he is. He is not going to be manipulated. He is the one who calls the shots. He's not a little god who can be bossed around by humans or other gods. He doesn't exist within the created world. He is the great god, the creator of heaven and earth. He has being in himself. He is the god like no other. One of the questions that kids most often ask is, who made God? You heard that one? And kids are often so frustrated that that question has no answer. or no satisfactory answer for them. But actually the fact that that question has no answer shows us an important truth. That God is uncreated. He has being in himself. He is the God like no other. This truth that's revealed in God's name is actually also illustrated in the circumstances in which he's talking to Moses. How is it that Moses and the Lord are having this conversation? Well, Moses has been out in the desert and he sees a burning bush, a bush that's on fire, and he goes over to have a look at this bush, not because the bush is on fire. Uh, that might have been a common enough thing in the desert, I don't really know. But it says he went over to look because the bush kept on burning and burning. It did not burn up. Now, I don't know how much you've played with fire. Uh, it's not meant to be a good idea. But either by playing or by some other way, you probably know how fire works. Fire converts fuel into light and heat. 
It's dependent on the fuel. When the fuel runs out, the fire is done. But when the Lord appeared to Moses, he appeared in a fire that didn't go out, a fire that was not dependent. Just as the God who saves us is not dependent on anything or anyone, he can never run out of fuel. He has being in himself. He is the God like no other. Now, if you're into technical terms, what we've been talking about here is the aseity of God. The way he exists in and from himself, independent of anything else. When we start using technical terms and pondering it like this, it's easy to get very philosophical and abstract. But right now I want to pause back from that. Because at the same time the Lord reveals his name with all its significance, he also describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He points out that he is the God who has made promises. If we rewind back to Genesis 12, God's rescue plan for the world began with those promises to Abraham, the ones we played with earlier. As the story unfolded, Abraham's family grew a little bit. Abraham's grandson Jacob had 12 sons who had become the 12 tribes of Israel And to avoid starvation in a famine, they moved to Egypt, where there was some food, where Joseph, one of the 12 sons, had become prime minister. They settled there for a while. And that's where our first reading today from Exodus chapter 1 began. Flip back to Exodus 1, and let's read from verse 6. Joseph and all his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. As the Lord had promised, they are becoming a truly great nation. Multitudinous. The Lord's keeping his promises. Wonderful. But the king of Egypt doesn't see it that way. A new pharaoh comes to power and he sees this growing group of foreigners as a threat. They keep to themselves. They speak their own language. Their loyalty can't be trusted. Their growing numbers must be stopped. And so first, pharaoh tries an economic approach. He takes away their work rights. He forces their men to do slave labour on government infrastructure projects far from home. Surely these harsh conditions will stop them from breeding, right? It doesn't work. Verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So then Pharaoh tries to use the medical system. He puts in place a policy for midwives that every time a newborn Hebrew baby boy is born, they must quietly kill him. But when that doesn't work, he resorts to stirring up the rest of the population to mob violence. Publishes an edict that the general Egyptian population must grab all Hebrew male babies they find and throw them into the Nile River. And all of this reminds us a bit, doesn't it, 
of the authoritarian regimes of our time. This is how the empires of this world do their business and preserve their power. God has been keeping his promise to turn Abraham's family into a great nation. But as that's happened, brutal hostility has risen up in opposition. Look down to the end of chapter 2 and we get a little summary of the situation. Chapter 2, verse 23. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The God who saves, who is the God like no other, is the God who hears and remembers. When his people groan under oppression, he hears. He's not off in his detached, eternal independence, just meditating with noise-cancelling headphones on. No, when his people cry out, he hears them. When you cry out to the saving God, he hears you. And he remembers He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He remembers the promises he's made to bless his people. When it says he remembers, it doesn't mean like he'd forgotten for a while and suddenly one day he sits up in bed. Oh, wait, I promised Abraham. No, 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 he'd always remembered, never forgotten. He'd looked on them and was concerned. Since the very beginning of human history, the evil one has been feeding humanity a lie. And the basic lie is that God doesn't care about you. The lie is that God doesn't want what's best for you. The lie is that God has forgotten about blessing you. But the truth is that the God who is like no other listens to the cries of his people. He hears your cries in the dark moments of your life and he remembers the promises he's made to you. He looks on you and is concerned. Now, when we have the God who is like no other, hearing the cry of his people and remembering his covenant promises, we expect action, don't we? That's an expectation that happens in our lives, an expectation that arises as we read the Exodus story. We expect action straight away. Maybe we expect fire and burning sulphur to immediately rain down on the oppressive Pharaoh. Perhaps we expect that this kind of powerful and faithful God wouldn't have let his people get into this kind of slavery in the first place. But we see in Exodus that the God who saves works according to his own timetable for his own good reasons. The God who saves is the God of mysterious delays. We see a lot of this in the personal journey of Moses. 
Now, we didn't read chapter 2, but that's where Moses' story begins. He's born amidst the oppression of slavery. He's born with this edict in place that all Hebrew babies must be thrown into the Nile. His mother hides him for the first three months of his life, but when she realises that won't work much longer, she obeys the edict. She puts him into the river, but she puts him into the river in a waterproof basket. She puts him amongst the reeds on the side of the river in a spot where possibly she knows that Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. So there's this little baby in the basket on the edge of the river and sure enough, along comes Pharaoh's daughter. She sees this basket. She gets her servant to go and pick it up. She opens it up and feels sorry for this crying Hebrew baby. Meanwhile, Moses' sister is hanging around nearby. And she says, "Uh, Your Royal Highness, I can see you've got a Hebrew baby that you're feeling sorry for there. Would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you? I just happen to know one. And so in the providence of God, Pharaoh's daughter pays Moses' mum to raise him. When he got older, he became adopted into the royal family as the princess's son. This is pretty amazing stuff. There's a man on the inside. Surely he's going to use his position to secure the freedom of the Israelites. But no, it's going to be a much more bumpy road than that. There are going to be mysterious delays. Moses does no doubt gain a good Egyptian education and cultural understanding, and he is in a position of influence. But he doesn't end up using that to save his people. He completely messes it up. As a grown man, Moses goes out and sees the Israelites doing their slave labour. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he's consumed by rage. Looking around, he murders the Egyptian. That's not a strategic move, that's just giving in to an impulse. Word gets around amongst the Hebrews that Moses is a murderer. Eventually, word gets back to Pharaoh that Moses is a murderer. Moses becomes a wanted criminal. He has to flee the country as a fugitive. All his status and comfort in Egyptian circles is gone. All his influence in the Egyptian government that he could have used to help his people, squandered. What is God doing? Moses flees off to the land of Midian, ends up marrying into a Midianite family. He has a son who he names Gershom, and he says the reason for this name is because I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Chapter 2, verse 22. Moses has been cut off from his people of birth, the Israelites. He's been cut off from the culture he was raised in, the Egyptians. He's now a nobody. He's not a young man. It seems he was close to 80 by this point. He doesn't expect to be able to achieve anything further with his life. And that's the point at which God meets him and calls him to serve. The Lord didn't appear to him in his comfy bedroom at the royal palace in Egypt. 
No, the Lord met him at his lowest point. The point where he had no confidence in his own power to achieve anything. He had to be at his lowest point to be useful to the Lord. And this honestly is true for us too. For us to be useful for the Lord, we have to give up all pretense of our own capability. Even to enter God's family and experience his salvation, we have to give up all our claims of worthiness or righteousness and receive that adoption as an undeserved gift. God gives us time to reach that point where we realise we can claim nothing for ourselves. No moral standing, no great wisdom. We have to come to the end of ourselves so we can depend on God alone. I'm reminded here about what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 about his and Timothy's experience in gospel ministry. He wrote, we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happens so we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. To be useful to God, you have to feel utterly useless in general. And if you're feeling pretty useless right now, you're in just the right place to be a genuine servant of God. The God who saves is the God of mysterious delays. God has his reason for these delays. For Moses, it was through the pain of terrible mistakes, rejection and exile, that he then eventually became the empty vessel ready to rely on God's power alone to lead Israel out of Egypt. For the Israelites as a nation, it was amidst the oppression of slavery and that delay that they grew into a truly numerous nation. Through the mysterious delays in this story, we actually see God at work. But while you and I in our lives are waiting for God to respond to our cries, we usually don't know the reason. The delays are mysterious. We don't know why he lets us go through the dark and muddy territory caused by our own failures or the malice of others. But we do see here in Exodus that delays are often a crucial part of God fulfilling his promises and achieving his purposes. When we realise that and remember that, it means we can wait and watch and keep trusting. So it's time to wrap up for today. Here at the start of the book of Exodus, we see the salvation story beginning. And we've seen the nature of the God who saves. He is the God like no other. He is the God who hears and remembers. He is the God of mysterious delays. This is important for us to know because we are people who've been saved by this saving God. As Christians, we are his saved people. 
It's the God like no other who's rescued us from our slavery to sin. And so let's worship him as the God like no other. It's the God who hears and remembers his promises who saves us from death and destruction. So let's cry out to him in our hard times. It's the God of mysterious delays who will bring us to eternal life in the end. So let's keep on trusting and keep on waiting for him. Amen.